Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 658 with my guest Raquel. That's a pseudonym we're using uh, for her. Uh, this is a mental illness happy hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room. And Waiting Room is also the name of the new support group we have. It's kind of a support group, kind of a hangout. And we do it every Sunday afternoon on Zoom. And we had a nice uh, nice group of about 20 people this last Sunday. And it's for people who are at the $20 or above level at, as uh, Patreon monthly donors. And a lot of vulnerability, a lot of compassion, and uh, really energizing. Really enjoyed it. Thank you to those of you that uh, that did show up. Um, speaking of, uh, I am not a therapist, um, a lot of pushback from people about last week's episode with, uh, Dr. Caroline, Caroline Leaf. And I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to read this email that I got some from somebody. And, and there were some people who did enjoy the episode and said that they got a lot out of it, but the overwhelming majority of people uh, were really disappointed and alarmed by some of the, not necessarily as much of the things that, that she shared, but uh, let me just read this email. And, and this is represents a lot of the emails that I got. Uh, this is from uh, Anna. She writes, Paul, I had to say something about the most recent guest you had on the show. I cannot believe you invited her to speak. Doctor, and doctor is in parentheses, or in quotes, Caroline Leaf is a charlatan. She does not have a degree. Uh, and then in, in uh, quotes, cognitive neuroscience, she is actually the equivalent of a speech and language pathologist and audiologist here in the States. These are the people who do hearing tests and swallow evaluations, not psychological studies or treatment. She's a self-promoting money grabber that is using nice people like yourself to promote her sales for her simplistic app program and is putting out false information about mental illness. Talk to a reputable psychiatrist about this woman. I am embarrassed to say that I did not understand, and I should have really looked into what her title actually meant. Um, and so I have taken it down because I was under the assumption um, that her degree was in something else, was in researching the brain in relation to, to, to mental illness. And I, it's pretty rare that I've taken episodes down in the past, but I, there, there's a couple of times I have, and I'm grateful to the people who sound the alarm bells um, and give me a perspective on something that maybe I have overlooked. That being said, I've also had people on the podcast who I got a lot of pushback from, but I felt it was uh, a valid guest slash topic, etc., to have. Um, so there you have it. That uh, last week's episode has been has been taken down, and I'm feeling I'm feeling good about it because um, if we're talking about something as important as the meds debate, 
I really want uh, somebody's opinion coming, if I'm having an expert on, I want their degree to be specifically in that. And I did not understand that her degree was not in the, the study of that per se. I hope that all makes sense. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Blueberry. And she writes, uh, Hi, Paul. I hope you're having a lovely day today. I am. Wanted to say thank you for the safe space you've provided for me and so many other listeners. It's a wonderful thing you're doing. Thank you very much. Wanted to ask you if you have any specific songs that you feel encapsulate a specific emotion that is hard for you to accurately pinpoint. And here I'm going to cue in some uh, some music that um, you might have heard heard before because I believe I've, I've done a montage or two with this music underneath it. But it, um, when I'm feeling melancholy, this is the music that best expresses what I can't put into words. There's a... I, and then Paul tries to put it into words. Um, continuing with uh, Blueberry's survey she uh, she writes um, sometimes I like to describe that feeling of not knowing how I'm feeling like it's a fruit smoothie with far too many pieces of fruit in it not sure if that makes any sense it makes total sense it's kind of like all of my emotions can usually be differentiated like specific flavors of different fruits some taste kind of similar but for the most part you'd be able to tell difference between an apple and a pear. Sometimes, though, it's like I blended too many of them together. It all becomes too mashed up into one unidentified flavor, and it becomes too overwhelming to try to decipher what's inside it. Sometimes there can be stronger flavors that can overpower some of the other ones, and I'll be able to say, well, okay, that tastes sort of sad and kind of angry, I guess. But there's so many other flavors in here that I can't identify pretty much any of them anymore. It's a feeling of overwhelming emotion and overwhelming inability to comprehend any of them. This feeling often leads me to not knowing how to respond to the question of what's wrong. It feels like someone is asking me to name every single fruit in my smoothie and it's just impossible. Sorry for the drawn out explanation of that feeling. I know it doesn't make all that much sense. No, it makes total sense. Anywhere is there, anywhere is there a song that kind of tastes like your smoothie? I think mine is a song called Made Up Dreams by Built to Spill. Um, thank you for that. And um, I think one of the reasons that I like writing and, and playing music is it helps me say what I can't find the words to say because it usually is nine different fruits sometimes there can even be happiness with the with the melancholy and um a lot of times it's a it's kind of a, f a foggy feeling of emptiness that that um with a little bit of hope in there and how do you put in that into words right when you're trying to describe it it's 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 hard usually it the next day I can describe what I was feeling the day before. But anyway, I, such a great topic. And thank you for um, using an analogy that, that really, I think, 
a lot of us can relate to. This is uh, from the love survey filled out by Boot Heel Girl. And uh, she writes, I love when I'm listening to a podcast and I hear laughter coming from downstairs, my three teens having fun together. I love seeing flowers bloom and listening to rain, especially at night. It must be great hearing your kids get along, not only get along, but having fun. I imagine parents so often are exhausted by siblings at each other's throats. Yeah, seeing siblings enjoy each other's company is truly, uh, I think, one of the most beautiful the most beautiful things. And I think people who grew up in families where there, there wasn't necessarily hatred, but there was kind of a lack of closeness, a lack of intimacy. It's I think we can spot it sometimes more than somebody who's where that was their normal. And they don't realize how rare or beautiful that is. Thank you for that. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Gina Marie, who is uh, a regular at our uh, waiting room support group on Sundays. And uh, about her depression, she writes, feels like I'm the captain of the team of me. (laughs) I don't pick myself. About her codependency, feels like I believe I'm the puppet master, but I have no idea that the strings have been cut. Snapshot from her life. Being in recovery for codependence is weird. There's no physical thing from which to abstain. It's a pattern of involuntary destructive thoughts and behavior. behaviors masked as selflessness, intuitiveness, and helpfulness. I grew up with toxic positivity and denial from one parent, narcissistic abuse from a step-parent, and alcoholism and emotional unavailability from another parent. I was a happy kid, and I believed it was my job to make everyone else happy. I first discovered the power of putting other people's needs first when I was seven or eight, and I would stay up until my mom got home from her third job at a restaurant. I would rub her feet and talk to her as if she were the child and I was the parent. When I was about 10, my power was reinforced when I watched through the sliding door of our beach vacation balcony. While my dad screamed and hit his girlfriend several times in the face and head. He was drunk, and she probably was too. Her daughter and I were crying and yelling through the door to stop it. When he did, his girlfriend ran to the bedroom and her daughter went with her. They locked themselves in and my dad tried to break down the door. Meanwhile, I had changed into my superhero cape, metaphorically speaking. I simply had to save the day. My dad loved me, I knew, and he had never hurt me physically. I talked to him in a soothing voice and convinced him to take me out for pizza down the street. I held his hand to keep him from stumbling and listened while he sat across from me and slurred his words while telling me how mad he was and how awful his girlfriend was for baiting him into hitting her. I appealed to his better angels, and he started to feel badly about what he'd done. We eventually walked back. I have no idea what happened the next day, but I know none of us ever talked about that night before. I think I felt like I had a job to do on this earth, and that was to take care of people and make them happy. They needed me. I began 
to befriend kids who were odd or outcasts. I have other addictions, but the most powerful one and the hardest one to kick is codependency. I've been married for 24 years to a man who has undiagnosed depression and alcoholism. Anything he liked, I liked. Anything he didn't like, I gave up. Food, music, sports, alcohol, it wasn't a big deal so long as he still needed me. I'm hyper-independent and self-sufficient. I act like I don't need anyone. But the healthy me inside, she would like an equal partner in this life. I'm thankful the healthy me has found Al-Anon, ACA, and AA. The healthy me is learning who she really is. She's emerging one layer after another. One layer after another after another, one day at a time. It's a slow, painful process, but so worth it. Recognizing and accepting my powerlessness, step one, felt simultaneously like a punch to the gut and a warm hug. Going back to my struggle in the sentence metaphor, I now see there are no strings on the puppets, and I look pretty foolish over here, determined, determinedly waving and flapping the handles with the strings flying around while the puppet people look at me like I'm crazy, because I am. Recovery for a codependent person looks like setting boundaries and keeping them, letting others do what they can do for themselves, humbling yourself, relying on others for help, and most of all, letting yourself feel your true feelings and be your true self, no matter what anyone else thinks or says. That is so good. Thank you for that. This is uh, also from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Dr. Identity. About his depression, he writes, uh, like a black void that's always right behind me, ready to swallow me up if I lose my balance and stumble even a little. About his codependency, every strong-willed person in my life can just reach inside me like a puppet and make me an extension of themselves whenever they want. So interesting. That was total coincidence that those two surveys were back-to-back. Uh, about being a sex crime victim. I'm a guy, so it was funny that it happened in public. The panic attacks happened in private after the show was over. But his anger issues. I have both anger and societal anxiety, so I'm not allowed to be mad at people face-to-face. It all gets saved for being alone in traffic. Thank you for that. Yeah, the, the anonymity of traffic where we can... Let it all out. Oh my God. So many times, especially before I got help, I would just have arguments with people that weren't there when I was in my car. I don't I don't know what it is about being, maybe it's the traffic annoys you, but I would just be pounding on the steering wheel, having arguments in my head or even out loud, th- saying things that I wanted to say to somebody, but couldn't find the courage to actually say. And then finally, this is uh, from a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Green Eggs and Ham. About her depression, she writes, treatment-resistant depression. I'm not really sad, just incapable of being happy. About her PTSD, it's like having a virtual reality headset on that randomly turns on and throws you into your worst memories about living with an abuser. I love him when I'm with him and hate him when I'm not. Wow. 
That one is so profound. And then a snapshot from her life. That one time I heard a noise in the dishwasher that I didn't like. I turned on music to drown it out, yet the only thing I could hear was the godforsaken noise. I pulled every item out one by one, starting the dishwasher after removing each item. By the time I was done, the dishwasher was emptied on the kitchen floor, and I was in tears. I learned that the sound is just the noise the dishwasher makes when it's running. My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or with my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this <laughs> I'm here with Raquel, who I met a week ago We were at a... And that's a... a pseudonym we're going to use because uh, i want you to feel free to open up thank you we met a week ago on a zoom support group meeting and as you were sharing i remember thinking god i wish my listeners could hear this and so i was like well why don't you ask her to come on your podcast and so here you are thank you thank you for coming thank you for having me thank you for asking me actually where do we begin with your story? Let's talk about your your childhood. Fill us in. Okay, um, my childhood. Well, I am not. I wasn't born in this country. I was born in El Salvador. Got here in 1982. I was actually fortunate enough not to have to cross the border. I got. We got amnesty. My mother did, but um, the rest of my family did have to, you know, cross the border. I unfortunately, when when I came to this country, like many kids, like a lot of immigrant children, um, I my mom came and left me with her family and then went back to our country to, you know, finish some stuff or take care of business because my father had just passed away. Mm -hmm. Um, My dad was like a revolutionist and he was an agricultural engineer. And so um and during the time that we came to this country, it was like the early 80s. So the, uh, my country was actually going through a civil war. I remember. So we came to this country to escape that civil war. So, yeah, my mom went back and she met someone. She was really beautiful. She was 33. She was still very young, became widowed t- with three kids. Um, you know, and my dad, you know, environment, lifestyle, everything. My dad was an alcoholic. He Is that what caused his death? And, um, I think it contributed to it, uh, the revolution, being a revolutionist, being, um, you know, a big man with, he carried a lot of weight, you know, and he also, uh, was not poor. So out there, there's really like, you're either poor or you're rich, you know? And so, um, he, I think his alcoholism, the times, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, all of it factored in actually. I have a lot of, um. Like my cousins, their fathers passed away during that time, too. So a lot of that happened in my family. Um, I think that in that time, too, um, it's just natural for people to drink. 
And from what I remember of the news stories, it was super, super fucking gnarly. It was very gnarly, especially Salvadorians, because, you know, in Mexico, when they started have a, having revolutions, the women started taking up arms and they there are a lot in history. They have a lot of what they call Adelitas. And then in El Salvador, we have a lot of guerrillas and guerrilleras. And so, you know, my country is very no, was very known for that, you know, and it was also for a, female fighters, for female fighters. Yeah. yeah, for a lot of women being strong, you know, vocally. And there's still communism in that country. Um but it's it's changed. They have a new president. He's very young. The economy's changed. They I mean they have Bitcoin as a currency. It's finally gotten off off of the most dangerous list. What what is your uh, sorry to to stray into the geopolitical sphere? But I, I can't help but uh, want to know your take on the sweeping uh, laws they enacted to jail uh, people with tattoos, gang members. In El Salvador or in this country? In El Salvador. In El Salvador. And explain to our listener well, what it is that I'm referring to. the culture is very different in El Salvador. It's not American. Um, you know, even in this country, what was in, in, in the earlier times before, you know, the commercialism of the tattoo culture, what were, tattoo, <clears throat> what were people with tattoos even in this country known as? Criminals. Always criminals. Where'd you get your tattoo? Jail. Criminals only had jails. So even women, it was like, oh, my God, a woman with a tattoo. So imagine that in a country like, you know, El Salvador, which I don't know. Do you guys consider that a third world country? Is that what it's considered? I have no idea. Um, I just know out there, you know, culturally that looks worse. What's funny, though, is that you can go into the jungle and find the indigenous and they do have tattoos. That's something that's cultural. So I think that colonialism, I think that, you know, classism is the only reason why tattoos were looked down upon. I think also like tattoos were something that people used to identify themselves back in those days. Unfortunately, like in other countries, cultures aren't as different or Mm -hmm. as ahead as other as this country. Um, We're very different in this country a lot especially in california i would say right because it's almost like if you go into other parts of the country if and if you're from la it's kind of like oh shit it's a third world country and even in our own country you right. know so yeah yeah, go town go downtown go yeah. to sixth and spring and uh it's yeah, different it's, it's right? eye it's opening but i i meant in particular like uh the struggle that the government you mean was, like, was having with the violence with MS-13. Well, MS-13 is a gang that started coming up in, I would say, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, we didn't have gang, we were Gangs is an influence that came actually from this country. Right. And what happened is that you see the people, because elitism, you see people that are poorer, you know, they're having to fight something. The The revolution is over. Now what are they? They're not guerrillas anymore. Now they're mm-hmm. becoming gang members. I mean, it's an easy thing to shift into. A lot of the gang influence also came from this country because, you know, they have uh, the Mexican mafia. They have all of the the Mexican, more dominated gangs in this country. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that Salvadorians just wanted to make a name for themselves and they they were able to. And, and when they uh, became widely known it was for their their ruthlessness yeah that they would go further come on you're you're talking about people from that country coming in from like you know a revolution Mm -hmm. and a war you don't 
Yeah, yeah. that mindset will yeah, come that, into that here. That switch you know? doesn't get turned, turned off, off immediately. Dog eat, yes. It's a dog eat dog world. Okay, you want to be a badass? Well, guess how bad we can right. be. It's always been like that. Right. Um, but that's everywhere. It's not just in my mm-hmm. country. I just know that El Salvador, for some reason, yeah. has caught a very big name for itself. Yeah, right. you know, we have a very strong um, demeanor, I think. I, I know even coming mm-hmm. in my own family, mm-hmm. you were supposed to be raised, we were raised kind of rough. Like, yeah. I remember my uncles telling me not to get my ass beat at school or else I can get an ass whooping when I get home. So imagine having to go to school with that in wow. your head. Every day. Wow. Like, you, you I, just can't back down. I, I was at a, a party a couple of months ago and I was talking to a couple um, that had both emigrated here from El Salvador. And uh, the woman was saying that she goes back and visits her family. And the guy said he can't because he has tattoos and he'll get thrown in jail because there's this sweeping, which was kind of what I was referring to earlier, well, um, is this sweeping thing where to battle the gangs, they were like, we're going to throw a lot of the laws out the window and we are jailing anybody with what looks like a gang related tattoo. Am, am I off base there? Um, I think you might be just a little bit. I mean, like, of course, you're getting um, your information from other tourists, right? My my brother still lives in the country, so I get information. Well, this, this guy is from El Salvador, uh, El Salvador that, that shared that with me. I would say me. that I don't know where he grew up or what his family base is. I know that my family is a combination of people that are upper class and then they have lower class. Like, I have a combination of that in El Salvador. So I have rich and poor. And I know that in the community, no, I would, I, my brother would definitely want me to wear long sleeves if I was out there. It's not... First of all, for a woman to be having be- a tattoo. Because you have tattoos. But are, then second uh, of all, my tattoos also are very gang affiliated. If you look at some of them, like I have a pink panther here. He looks like a gangster. That's something that's, that's considered be, gang affiliated. I mean, like, yeah, for sure. If you're going to a country where that is something, if I go to jail, this is something that they, they would definitely take a picture. She's of, pointing you know? to the. Uh, it's a smile now, cry later. Tattoo. Um, oh, OK, because it, it looks like. To me, my first thought was it's the uh, comedy tragedy masks side by side. So that that means something different. It's not the actor's guilt. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And plus, you're talking to someone who has worked in entertainment. It's definitely not affiliated to that. Um, So, yeah, my brother Mm -hmm. definitely would want me to wear like long sleeve shirts. Mm -hmm. It's not feminine. Um, Also, machismo is big out there. The yeah, they've pretty much done a sweep um that country has pretty much eradicated the gangster uh epidemic yeah uh, they have like prisons not just one like various prisons that are filled with gang members right yeah. now so yeah there's not a lot of people who want to be uh, hardcore out there yeah. <laughs> well let's let's segue to what uh childhood was like for you here in in the states you're kind of your Things you experienced, your view of yourself, your view of the world. Um, well, I do remember not speaking English at a very young age. Um, I do remember, you know, having to learn English in pre-kinder and in kindergarten, having to do the ESL tables. Um, so that already separated me from the other kids in the class. And that already made me very noticeable. Um, and for our listeners that don't know, ESL is English uh, as, as a second, second language. language. Yeah. yeah, and and the, it was the 80s, too. So um, I remember I did have a little friend. She was Cambodian, and we both didn't speak English, and we were 
Like it was in pre-kinder and the way we communicated was like nodding our head like, hey, let's go play here. And and she was someone that I'll never forget, you know. Um, I do remember being called a beaner and being told that um, I'm going to go cut someone's grass or something like that. I've even had I, I remember going to elementary school and teachers telling me I wasn't going to do more than clean houses or work at McDonald's. I remember. Things wow. Like that. You know, um, uh, and so, yeah, yeah, you grow. You, you eventually you're just like, fuck you. And and who was it that was calling you that? Was it white kids were were it, it was what, white and black kids, actually. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Um, I grew up here in North Hollywood, so I'm a local. Um, yeah, I got a lot of that. I learned perfect English before I, I uh, finished elementary school. I want to say by the time I was in second grade, I didn't have a problem. And I didn't have an accent anymore. Because when you hate that, you learn quick. you know. And I think kids learn pick up things way faster than adults. So I picked it up pretty easily. Um yeah, uh, that was that was interesting. School was interesting. Um, I think that my family dynamic was affected not just by the fact that my aunts and uncles were all raised abusively. My my grandfather was an active alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandma abandoned him, came to this country, and the poor man died alone, drunk, alone, literally. It's really sad. Um, it is sad. Yeah, because my grandma came to this country and then just like totally turned her back on him. And like, I never remember him. I don't remember even anyone speaking of him anymore. So um, alcoholism runs deep in my family. Alcoholism and like mental and physical abuse. My grandma, my grandfather was the alcoholic, but my grandmother was the abuser. one. She was the angry. She used to hit. So what were some of the things she would she would say? If you well, I you, she wasn't the nicest grandma to us, so I can't even imagine the kind of a mother she was. But I do remember being like about four years old, and it was we used to watch this show called Land of the Lost. I remember that show. And uh, there were these white rocks that glistened in the sun, and I went across the street and started playing with them. And then, I, and then when she called us into the house, I threw them back in, and me and my cousins were all playing with them, and she saw us. And I shit you not, that woman took a, a yard hose and spanked all of us with it right before we entered the house. And I don't think I ever felt that kind of pain at that young of an age before. And yeah, that was traumatizing. I I, I do remember growing up in fear, like, because you're like scared of go like of the people out there. But then you're also scared of the people in there, you know, and my parents weren't around. My dad was dead. My mom ended up meeting this guy while she was out there um, who was a billionaire, like, and then, like, started traveling with him, you know? And, like, we would get visits from her randomly. Um, what what did that feel like, um, not having uh, your not mom having around? parents, you mean? Yeah. What did, I mean, at least your dad's you could explain away, but uh, it your was mom, hard. it was a choice for her to not be there, right? You know what? Now that I'm an older woman and now that I have my own child, um, I don't know if it was really a choice that I don't know how to explain it. I've forgiven her. Damn, I've done a lot of work with my mom. Um, I hated her for a long time, probably till the end of my 20s. Um, And you're how old now? I'm 44. I just turned 44. Um, 
you know what? It was hard. I was reminded constantly that my dad was dead and that my dad was a piece of shit because, you know, they nobody like I think they were I my aunts hated him and my uncles idolized him. My uncles still talk to my about my father like he's some legend, like this amazing man. Right. But my aunts talked about him like he was a piece of shit. And um and then my aunts, I think, were also resentful that maybe my mom didn't have to cross a border. I think they were resentful that my mom just ditched them all with her their her kids. I think that they they took their resentments out on us because I was constantly reminded that my mom wasn't there. And what would they say? They would tell me that she was like a prostitute. And like they would just say a bunch of shit. And they would also tell me that I was so ugly that I was found in a trash can and that I wasn't really a part of their family. And it was just. Like, I they don't would know. call you ugly. Yeah, they would tell me I was ugly. Like I grew up being told I was ugly all the time, actually. Um, also, um, my aunts, like my, my, my uncle took my two sisters. They were older than me. And I was the baby. I was like two when I came to this country. So for some reason, they, nobody wanted a baby because they were all having their own baby. So I was, I was switched around. I, I was always left. I wasn't with my my sisters growing up. I had to move around from these. My two aunts would fight over me constantly, and um, I would I would constantly be switched from household to household. I think there was a time where they were both accusing each other of child abuse. So one of them was like hiding me, and she kept on putting me in different schools. But you know that's only because they started noticing that something was wrong, and they didn't realize that they were fighting so much amongst themselves that when I was five years old, I got sexually assaulted. And, uh, you know, I think that it was like when I was seven. Because they weren't paying attention? Because they weren't paying attention, because they were too busy fighting amongst themselves, because they were too busy fighting about who's going to take care of me because I was the, the little one, um, because they just hated each other even though they were family and they wanted to be with each other. It was weird. And they were they my aunts weren't alcoholic, but my uncles were. And um, yeah, I just remember when it when the assaults stopped, it was because uh, this man that, you know, he crossed the border with my uncles. He stopped coming around. Finally, I think one of my uncles stopped being friends with him or something. And so he was not a relative. The, he the was not that, a relative. Okay. He was just this guy that, you know, they knew from El Salvador. He crossed the border with them. and. I don't know what happened, but abruptly this man was no longer around. And then all of a sudden we all lived in this huge house. All of a sudden everybody took their family and moved away. And I just remember sitting in the front of the house thinking what happened to everybody and what, you know, I just remember seeing my sisters moving with my uncle and then just me sitting there thinking like, what are the, what, what is going to happen to me? Um, And that's when my aunt started like this, like, war of who's gonna take me and like you know whatever all this all this stuff all this stuff when right it was like before i was even eight years old it's just it was a lot it was it sounds like a lot yeah i i do clearly remember being like 10 thinking damn you live out of a bag because you never know when you're gonna move to another house and you know, I, I I know that's what factored into me moving out and living on my own when I was 15. Well, I was 16, actually. My roommate was 15 and I was 16. And we got an apartment right here, uh, right off of Laurel Canyon, actually. Yeah. 
right off of Laurel Canyon. So, right, right, walking distance from North Hollywood High. What do you, you know, you, you shared in the support group meeting a, a week or so ago that you're in a phase of your healing from the sexual trauma that you experienced. And um, before we started recording, you said, uh, if I had extended an invite to you two months ago yeah. to talk about this, you would have have declined, but you are in a different place now. Can you can you talk about that and kind of what's changing in in you and how you view the past and how you view yourself, you know, as much as as much as possible to two things help people understand it who haven't experienced it and help those who are listening who are in it. Mm-hmm. Right. To know that well, they're sh- not alone and it's complicated. What shifted for me? Um, well, let's say I knew at 16 that I was going to be an alcoholic and, and I knew it. And um, I remember the first time I tried to get sober, it's going to be about 19 years ago now. 19 years ago on a court card and um it just nothing i never worked the program first of all i never did the the 12 steps before i never really got honest with the with the sponsor i would tell them the truth but i would hold a lot of the information back so they only got half of it mm-hmm. so honestly that's not honest right. and um i never respected anyone in the program i never respected the program i never like i said i never really listened either i would go to meetings and i would just think about myself or what will i say if they call me um but never really listening to you or to what you were really feeling or going through never really caring actually you know just being a ghost in the room really um would it be fair to call that a kind of self-obsessed survival mode I think whatever, yeah, you could, yeah, maybe you could call that too. You could call that. But I, I also thought that, you know, my survival mode was being an addict. I was like, well, you know what? A lot of times I picked up that pipe before I picked up that gun to my head. So, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, a lot there of were times, times. There were times you pointed a gun to your head? No, that's uh, metaphorically. Okay. Metaphorically, okay. I want to say that I, I could have killed myself physically plenty of times over and over but I picked up doing drugs and alcohol before I killed myself. Sure. Um, and so in an essence, if you really want to think about it, a lot of my, like a lot of my drug and alcohol history might've been what saved me from actually killing myself. Because I, I, I remember taking a butter knife thinking I could kill myself when I was five. Cause I, a shit started for me then, you know? Um, do you remember what your thoughts were at five with the, uh, I do. The actually, butter knife? I hate that. I remember, I remember now, um, I just remember thinking that I hated what I was feeling and that I, I hated being called pretty. I hated that people thought I was pretty at, at that young age. The, to have grown men tell you that you're beautiful and that when you grow up, you're going to be their wife. And I didn't understand that. So the men were calling you beautiful well, and your aunts were, were calling you ugly. That man was, you know. And oh, then, the predator was yeah, calling you beautiful. And like there were times where I wouldn't even know that this person was in the same room and out of the like shower curtains or, uh, you know, like I'd wake up with glow sticks on my bed. It's just like 
I really just didn't know. I got confused. Like, is pretty bad? Is being pretty bad? You know? And so I got, I, you're telling a five year old that she's going to be your wife when she grows up and she's feeling things that hurt me physically. It hurt. What he did hurt me. It wasn't like I enjoyed it. It wasn't like there was any, like, you're five years old. Do you know how much that hurts a girl? It's, it's to be penetrated it by an adult. Like, it's fucking painful. So, yeah. Um, I just, I, I don't know actually exactly what I was thinking, but I just think that I wanted to die. I think I wanted it to stop. I think I didn't have parents. I think that I was visiting my sisters. I think that I had people that were supposed to love and care about me telling me I was piece of, like that I was found in a trash can and that I was ugly. Like, I don't know what else to say. You know, like they were telling me my mom was a prostitute. My mom was a music teacher in El Salvador. <laughs> You know, she was the only one of them that went to college. Like, I, I think a lot of their anger was envy and they took it out on her children. And that's fucked up. Really fucked up. That's because re- I am in somewhat of a similar situation. My mom is actually raising my nine year old niece. And I know that me and my and my sister were like, OK, we love you. We can't take care of you because we I remember having the conversation with my sister like. Or we're gonna have to take care of her for the rest of her life, but then she had a kid, and now that's that's done. Now we can't take care of her because now we're gonna have to take care of her kid. Um, and I know that we love her, and that we never say things that we never. She never has to go through any of the things that I went through. Denise, yeah, never. It's um, she's very well protected. Let's just say that. So, what do you think? As you uh, got older, from from five onwards. What do you think your conscious or subconscious thoughts about the world and your p- place in it? You know, if you could condense it, you know, al- along the lines of, you know, the world isn't safe and I'm on my own or, or whatever, whatever those words might be. If you could have found those words at age 10 or 15 or whatever. Mm. I can't answer that because that girl, my 10-year-old self, was actually dope. Um, they, I, I think that my child my child personality before I even started drinking was so strong and pure. And, like, I, I, I could tell you right now, I remember being, um, like, around those ages, five, six, and seven, and I would wake up and tell myself, today's a new day. What happened yesterday didn't happen. So you were resilient, emotionally uh, resilient. That's what I would do. So I think that at age 10, I would have probably said the same thing. I used to wake up. I used to be like, what happened yesterday didn't happen. You don't have to remember yesterday if you don't want to. I already knew to tell myself that. I don't know why or how. I don't believe in religion, but I do believe in, in a higher power. Mm-hmm. I never, I, and I can tell you right now that my higher power must have protected my me when I was a little kid because something, something told me, you know, Something told me, wake up every day and think that every single day, you don't have to live in what happened yesterday. And honestly, what started weakening my mentality was drinking. I didn't, what is it's so sad because now that I'm sober and I really love it, what has changed in then the three years? Let me just kind of skip to that for a second. What has changed is that I worked the program. I finished my 12 steps. I'm almost going on three years again. And I have the same sponsor we have a great relationship. I talk to her at least two to three times a week. And during the school season, um, I see her at a meeting once once a week. But, you know, summer, she's with her kids. 
Um, but I work the program. I honestly work the program. If someone asks me to show up for them, I show up for them. I don't just go to a meeting and stay sober. And because that to me is being dry. And it's kind of like you're not even trying to get your flavor. You're staying flavorless if you're not working the program. So that's what's changed for me, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it took <clears throat> years for me to want that. Uh, it took years for me to see my self-worth. I don't think... I think that I stayed dried for all those years because I still didn't believe I was worth it or good enough. And I'll tell you what got me back in during the pandemic. Um, I had, I got, um, I got assaulted again. (laughs) And you know what? That shit pisses me off. Plain and simple. I'm mad about it. I hate alcohol now. I resent it. I'm mad that it happened to me again. What what does alcohol have to have to do with? Well, because, um, the evening that I uh, that I was assaulted, I was drinking with somebody that I thought I could trust, somebody that was my friend, and you know, I was I something happened at this barbecue that I was at, and um, I was going to call an Uber to go home, and you know, they offered me one more drink, and I was like, okay, and I don't remember anything after that. Were you drugged, or you just blacked out naturally, or you don't know? I don't know. I just woke. I just. I don't know how I even got home, but I just know I woke up with someone on top of me, and you know that. So I. I don't know if it was a blackout or if I was drugged. I don't. I can't even answer that question. But I can tell you that it's given me such an anger that I will never let myself go through that again. And the shit that I've done is just like I've blamed myself the last almost three years for it. Talk. Talk about that because I. I think it, it. one of the things that people who've been assaulted, especially uh, if there was drugs or alcohol involved, the mean shit that they say to, to themselves, themselves and the way they excuse it away is is heartbreaking and so common. And it's like this wall that's that's up. And it doesn't seem to be like an intellectual wall. It's like an emotional wall wall yeah is is that in in my experience with all the surveys i've read the people who have shared that it's like they can they can recognize your assault or your assault or anybody else's assault they can see it clearly but they can't see their assault clearly and they blame themselves they make excuses for the perpetrator in a way that is frankly jaw-dropping sometimes well, I never made the, well, when I was younger, I never made an excuse for the perpetrator because I, I always knew, even as a little kid, that that wasn't right and that I wasn't supposed to feel that. I knew it. and um, But as an adult, yes, I did. I did, but I blamed myself completely. What were the things you told yourself? Ugh, I was just mad. I was like, you're the dumb one. Why did you trust him? Why did you go? Why did you think that he was someone you could be friends with? Why? Um, you put yourself in that situation. It's your fault. It happened. He wouldn't have done that if you didn't trust him. He wouldn't have done that if you didn't let him. I completely. And then, and then I even went into this like, were you anti? Were you enticing him? Were you purposely? Did you think? Did you want to hook up with him? Did you think that? Or like, you know, like I, I, yeah, I went back and forth on that. Like, I, I even questioned, like, did I want that? Like, you know, it was fucked up. I didn't. Fuck no, I didn't. You know. Um, I even try to convince myself that I 
I was attracted to him. I even tried to convince myself that I liked him. The day, the next day, I was like, no, I like this. I like that it happened. I wanted it to happen. Didn't I? Didn't I want that to happen? Yeah, I went through all that. And the last thing that you mentioned is so common. I read it in so many surveys where the people will who who experienced the assault and then dated the person afterwards will say, well, that it couldn't have been assault if I dated them afterwards not realizing that that is a common way for them to minimize what happened. Um, for them, and then also for that perpetrator to allow himself to think it's okay to do it right. again. Um, no, unfortunately, I'm not that kind of a woman when I'm sober. I threatened that man. <laughs> what you say? I threatened his life, of course. Um, we know who we are, he and I. He and I, we know who we are. What did you, if you're comfortable sharing it, what did you say and what was his reaction? I, um, you know what? There's certain people in certain places that you don't really get details about. And that person in that place is, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to hold back on certain details about it. No problem. But I will say this, that we're both from a part of the uh, urban community that is more hardcore. And so sometimes you, just need to learn how to pick your shit up and keep going. Okay. There's people that you just don't fuck with. Meaning yeah. meaning you. Meaning uh yeah, meaning me, yeah for sure, but no, okay. I I'm I'm not just not going to fuck with that. Person. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm not he's just, you know. I'm so, good. So let's let's fast forward to um where you've been in the last couple of months. What's shifted? What are the thoughts or feelings that are going on with you? And, and if you can put into words the progress that you feel like you're, you're, you're making. Well, in the, since I've gotten sober, I've, I've lost, uh, I lost a couple people. And, um, I to was, drugs and alcohol? Yeah. And I was actually just letting myself go, you know, in every single way, you know, physically, mentally, and emotionally. And um, my true self isn't that person. My true, my true self is not the type of person that rolls over and dies. My person is the type of person who is resilient. And something snapped like about two months ago. And I was like, no, you're not dying. You're fucking, you deserve to think, look at yourself and think you're beautiful again. You deserve to have a relationship with someone who loves you. You deserve to be treated special. You deserve for a guy to make you feel wanted every single day. And I just, I, cause I know I deserve that. There's nothing, there's no reason why I don't deserve it or why you don't deserve it or why no one deserves it. And there's someone out there for every single one of us. If we, if you know what I'm saying? And I don't know, I could, could it just be because I just turned 44? Could it be that my daughter's 22 and I have, I'm now the mother of an adult and she's a grown woman. You know, and thank God she's never had sexual assault in her life. I have a very healthy, grown adult daughter who is very healthy sexually and physically and emotionally. And I'm very proud of that, you know. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I just got tired of not giving a fuck about me and only giving a fuck about everyone else. Are, are there any areas of self-care that you've struggled with in the past, you yeah. know, because maybe a subconscious thought that I'm not 
worthy of this or it's not important or whatever. Elaborate on that if you can. I'm sure. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that you've heard this with a lot of sexual trauma um, people, uh, weight issues, up and down, up and down. Personally, I always thought being overweight was that meant you're ugly. So naturally, I'm not. Naturally, I'm a very thin or fit person. And so what I would do was I would purposely gain weight to be less attractive because it sometimes scares me to have certain type of men or too many men liking me at one time. I can't. That's always scared me. I can only like one person at a time and I only want one person to like me. It's it's and of course, I can't control who likes me and who doesn't like me. I also can't control if the person that I like doesn't like me back. You know what I'm saying? But um and baggy clothes is another one that survivors will will wear. Yes, and I used to love to wear baggy clothes. Um, you know, I used to love wearing jackets in the summer, which is funny because now I hate wearing jackets in the summer, but I have lupus. So sometimes I have to wear a sweater outside when it's sun when it's sunny, only if, to cover my shoulders because I get um breakouts, but um, that's another thing. I just, was... I, I like, by the way, that you just threw out that you have lupus as if the rest <laughs> of the shit on your plate isn't enough, but go ahead. I, Word, I, right? I cut you. No, I, sorry. I cut that's you the off. least of my fucking work. Yeah. <laughs> this life threatening. Finish your, finish your thought. Um, but yeah, no, I, I did that. I did all of that. Um, I do believe that my program and the work in my program has, taken me to another level where I feel like professional help is needed. And so, because I can only get in it so much out of groups, you know, right? and of people, you know, with the same traumas helping me. I actually feel like I need, I I felt like I needed something more. I needed more professional help. And did you arrive at that yourself or was it suggested to you by people in the group? I think it's been suggested to me for years. Um, Nothing recent. Uh, but yeah, I just finally started taking suggestions and honestly, it just clicked too. Cause I, I literally just thought, no, you do need it. I want more. I have a heart, such a hard time making connections with men. Um, I mean, connections with women as friends too, you know, but romantic connections with men, I have such a hard time with. And, you know, in the past, I've only allowed myself to be sexual, like, the only, I think, man that I ever gave an opportunity to have a relationship with me was my child's dad. And so, um, you know, I was kind of one of those girls that was like, let me fuck you and then I'm done with you. And so, I, th- so that was your way of, of protecting not, yourself? Yes, just so that I only felt something and only I had the feelings and then I was able to cut it off. But, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't feel that way anymore. I'm definitely a different yeah. person today. And, and so I know I want more, you know, than that, for sure. And I hate to be the, the guy on the soapbox, the the know-it-all, but I just I feel compelled to say this for the listener out there who, um, who is experiencing so many of the textbook repercussions of being a an assault survivor is one of the things that is really common is then becoming promiscuous afterwards and having one-night stands. And they think... And the mean voice in their head says, see, you know, you're a slaughter, you're a whatever, when in reality, it's the brain's attempt to tra- take control of the situation, take, you yeah. know, 
find power in the sexuality. I think that you find a lot of extremities. Like there's people who are extremely not sexual. Exactly. And then there's people who are extremely sexual. I myself feel like I, I was... I was very sexual, but I needed to be inebriated to be sexual. Um, and that's why the the situation that happened to me the last time was so bad because I didn't need that, you know what I'm saying, even though I was inebriated. But that's how I, I ran my relationships. Even Even like I remember even my daughter with her dad. I was probably drunk and high the whole time we were together. I'm pretty sure I was, or I tried to be, you know. Um, and I was with every single man after that. And I, I like totally look forward to meeting someone that I can connect with sober. Mm-hmm. Was eye contact difficult oh, yeah. for you during intimacy? Fuck yes. Talk yes. about that. Oh, man. Eye contact? Who needed eye contact? I made sure we connected in other ways. Um, there were other things for their eyes to contact with. <laughs> what was I it? kind of was one of those girls that was like, why are you looking at my eyes, motherfucker? Look at my tits. <laughs> Like, <laughs> I was also that girl that was at the bar that was like, why do you have an empty uh, drink? Let me buy you a drink. I would sauce people up. I was a total fucking, yeah, man, not afraid at all. I'm so aggressive when I'm drunk. But it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, I'm not. When Before <laughs> you got sober on a given night, if you weren't drinking, were those behaviors gone? The, you know, trying to hook up, being If I wasn't being drinking, aggressive. I was probably doing coke. The, I don't know. There were years where I okay. wasn't sober in any type of way. Okay. So if you can put into words the feeling of eye contact during intimacy. I made eye contact with my baby daddy. <laughs> He's the only one I ever made eye contact with. And talk about the feeling of that versus the feeling of somebody, somebody else. Well, I'll tell you, when we broke up, he took a piece of me that's never come back. I'm definitely, he's the only man that I've ever been in love with, for sure. And what I think about now, it's like, oh, man, do I even think that was really being in love, though? Now I even think that because I was like, you weren't even sober for it. So I probably have never even really felt in love yet. I've never probably been in love, if you really think about it. I, I You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, eye contact. I still have a hard time. I'm, I mean, I'm having eye contact with you. Right. I feel safe. You're cool. Yeah. You know why? Because you shared your trauma with me. <laughs> so that's what I, I love s- about support groups, man. It's um, like you can make friends with somebody in sixty minutes. I still have a hard time making eye contact, especially yeah. when I'm attracted to a man. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. When I'm attracted to someone, I get so shy now. It's ridiculous. I am the complete opposite of that fucking girl that used to buy you the drink at the bar that was like, "Don't look at my eyes, look at my tits." Now I'm like, "Please look at my eyes." You yeah. Know? The complete opposite. Um, I'm very shy. I'm very timid. Um, it takes me a long time to want to like somebody. It, it, if I do like that one person, I only, like I said, I only like that one person. I'm not really one of those people that can have like three or four things going on. Right. Um, very loyal. So the 
I'm, I'm always fascinated by the eye contact thing because I have struggled with it in the past before I began to heal the stuff that happened to me. Eye contact was not a turn on to me. And then after years in support groups and therapy, it's something that I really enjoy with, with my girlfriend. It's a, it's a big part of it. And I sometimes wonder if what changed is that is how I feel about myself and that my self-hatred and self-judgment decreased. And so it's easier for somebody to see me because I don't feel like, I don't know, I'm going to be judged or I'm not worthy of being seen. I, I'm not sure what it is. It's a feeling. Can I know what, what do you, you think? What do you think I, hearing me say that? What I got from what you just said was, well, what I can do, how I can identify what you said, um, is I feel scared of a man looking at me in the eyes because I'm afraid of what he's going to think of me. Um, I think that he might think I'm ugly or like he might regret sitting there and having dinner with me or something. I completely fall apart. Um, I'm just afraid. I'm afraid of like if if they're just going to think I'm just like this ugly woman. I still feel that, actually. I, I'm still working on that feeling, actually. Yeah. What What are the voices in your head that... Are negative and what are the voices in your head that are beginning to emerge that are positive when that battle starts in your head uh the voices in my head of the negative is that when they look in my eyes they're gonna see everything about me and that's why they're gonna think i'm ugly you know but then the other voice in my head is like no they're going to look in your eyes and they're going to be like, damn, she's a fine bitch. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. That's not what I think. Um, I don't know. Actually, I haven't gone through it yet. What are the parts that you're afraid of that? It's terrifying. (laughs) It is. It's It's terrifying. And to people who've not experienced it, it's, it's, it's hard for them to wrap their head around it because it's hard to put into words what that it's a feeling more than Man, I don't know. Intellectual you got me on thought. that one. You got me on that one. You got me. Because um, like I'm, like I said, I'm still healing right now. Right. I'm very in. Um, it's fresh still for me the healing. Because like I said, I've only been working really hard on myself, and I, I could honestly say that in the last two months, I've definitely felt more empowered than I had before. And so, it's that that question is kind of something I'm still thinking about, actually. <laughs> Do, does it feel different? in your physical skin walking around as you, you, you use the word empowered, uh, walking out your front door, feeling your arms and your legs and, you know, being out in public, does that feel different or is the empowered more of a, um, kind of, uh, an intellectual aspect that you, that you feel? Well, in the, I think because of the people I grew up around and in the society environments that I grew up around um, and my personality, I always walked around like nothing was wrong. And I always walked around like I was the number one shit in the room. I never walked, I never allowed for people to think that I didn't think that way about myself. So um, now what the difference is, is that I'm starting to kind of believe it a little bit. <laughs> Whereas before I was just, fucking putting up that front for you now there's days where i wake up and i'm like you do look pretty (laughs) you know and um that's and now i wake up and work out too and i don't do that to look cute for a man i definitely do that too because i want to be healthier because i'm getting older because i have health issues because 
you know, what if my mom, my daughter makes me a grandma one day? Like, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. There's so many, there's so many things that I have a reason to stay um, healthy for, really. And I, and I love uh, the, anytime a survivor talks about some self-care, yeah. whether it's working out or eating healthy or something that is, has nothing to do with what the rest of the world thinks of us, but because we feel that that we're worth it. Even showering when we don't feel like it. Oh my God. I Putting know. on clean socks. Yeah. I struggle to put on clean socks because I always look at the ones that are dirty on the floor and think, well, I can just, I can just wear those. I don't want to create more laundry to do. Right. Well, I also am, I work in the, in the world of beauty. I'm, um, I work in that world where my job is to actually, take somebody into my chair and I listen to their needs and I listen a lot of times to the, they just look at themselves in the mirror while I'm giving them a consultation and just go off on themselves in front of me. And what I have to do is pick that up and then work off of that and then make and create something where they can look in the mirror and say, I look great. I look beautiful. And that's only 50%. That's only 50%. And that's what I love why that's why I love what I do. And I wake up every morning happy to go do it because I pick the career where I can help someone feel beautiful about themselves. Even when I feel like shit, there's been days where I'm like, I hate looking at myself, but I'm telling you to look at yourself. Right. And I'm telling you that these are all the reasons why you're beautiful. And then I'm doing things to you to make you see those things. And still there were years where I was like, not doing that for myself and so i stopped i was like you're 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 a fucking hypocrite if you can provide that for someone and not yourself and so i also you know put my career it's uh my career is very important to me and if you know me you'll know that and and i can't give my clients a hundred percent if i'm not a hundred percent you know, and hygiene is a huge deal. Like hygiene is indicative of how you care about yourself. If you don't brush your teeth or take a shower, then that's just that's just you not loving yourself. No one's going to do that for you. Yeah. And so, you know, living in a world like that. Also, you have to understand I, I work in a very competitive world where a lot of the women and men are younger than me. I'm, I'm considered old now. <laughs> so, you know, um, I look at beauty different. I look at I when I was I also do makeup and I also know how to sculpt. So when I was taught to look at a face, uh, when I learned how to sculpt, I was taught to look at the bones, not to look at the skin. And that's the part, kind of like the principle of my practice every single day. You don't really look at the outside of a person's shell. You have to really listen to the words that they're saying and then look from within. And I think that you don't really get the outward look until you get the inward look. And so, um, you know, you you if you love what you do, you do what you love. And I, I can't do it 100% if I don't love myself. 100%. Like, you know. So, And you being, a, you being someone that has worked in that industry, too, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, because it's not, it's not just beauty. <clears throat> it's it, beauty and entertainment are one in the hand. They're together. And I've worked in both of those worlds. Talk about uh, the lupus. When did it appear? And what is a day when your lupus is bad? What is that like? 
So I found out I had lupus when I was in this roller derby league. Um, I used to roller skate with this league in beach cities. And uh, my roller skates wouldn't come off anymore. <laughs> Literally took five of my girls to pull my skates From off. From the swollen feet? Yes. And I was like, wait, am I pregnant? And I was like, why are my ankles that swollen? And I went and all of that led me into I found out I had lupus. And then they told me I had fibromyalgia and... I think I was, I was like in my late, but I was like probably 36 going into 37. And, um, you know, I, I managed to get it into remission right before the pandemic. I was in such great shape. I was like working out before work and after work, like hard. And, um, I was also sober before the pandemic and I don't know what happened. The pandemic getting depressed. They told me my lupus got out of remission and now I got it back. I just stopped taking care of myself and I got and I gained weight. Uh, but lupus is. Um, is it an autoimmune? It's an autoimmune disease. Okay. Not a lot of people know about it. Um, lupus is also something that can easily turn into cancer. So a lot of lupus patients do end up having cancer. Um, it's hard to find support groups for it because, again, a lot of people you know, um, don't know very much about it even today. And um, even rheumatologists sometimes are hard to work with because I also have fibromyalgia and a lot of rheumatologists think that fibromyalgia is a made up disease that's mm -hmm. all in your head. But when you're living in pain and you can't get out of bed because your body literally hurts. I mean, there were there was this one time I um got sciatic on both sides of my legs and couldn't walk for two weeks and had to be on a morphine drip. What? Yes, it was horrible. And the pain was excruciating because it felt like the bottom of my back just gave out. And I was only, I think, 38 at the time. So, yeah, I've gone through stuff like that that where it's still, de like, dehabilitated me, where it's taken me out and I can't get out, like, I can't move. Um, there was one almost a whole year where I was like, bedridden but what i keep on doing is fighting it what i do is fight it um i don't believe in western medicine because all, the, all they ever do is give you prescriptions so mm -hmm. i take a little bit of both worlds you know i know there's certain things i need medication for but then i also do a lot of herbal things um i, I drink a lot of teas i eat clean i've gone through yes. every diet you could think of and now i just eat anti-inflammatory foods and I meal prep and what are some um, good anti-inflammatory foods? Basically anti-inflammatory foods is simple. You don't eat fried foods. You don't eat breads. You don't eat white flour. Don't eat sugar. You Processed don't eat, sugar. you don't eat sugar, processed sugar of any kind. I don't even eat artificial sugars. Like mm. I don't do stevia even though it's natural, but once it's in a bottle, it stops being natural. You got to get the plant in order for it mm. to be natural. So, you know, really clean eating. Um, yeah, that makes a big difference because a lot of times you go to the doctor and they're like, take this pill. I remember sitting in there and being like, well, besides the pill, is there something I should stop eating? Can we do so?" And like, no, no, just keep on your going on your life. And then after you're done with that pill, we'll give you another one. And so I got tired of the And that's race. depressing. It's, it's depressing yeah, when you feel like the it expert. It's very depressing. Who, who's in your insurance coverage. Yes, doesn't I mean, doesn't get it, or at least has a very narrow view of what the options are. It's I, depressing. Yes, it's and I look at myself and I'm like, you don't look old, but your body feels old. Because there's days where my body will make me feel like I'm fucking old, 
So yeah, it really fucks with my head. But um, like I said, you believe in yourself. I, I don't know how I got here where I'm at right now. But right now, what I do is I believe in myself. I don't wait for someone to like me. I like myself. Um, you know, and it's all new, you guys. It's nothing. It's not like I've been living like this a long time. It's all new. And there's still days where I'm like, you're ugly. Look at you. You're fat. But then I'm just like, no, you're not, girl. Get on that fucking elliptical machine because I have one in my house. <laughs> there's a, so there's nothing actually stopping us from being happy. And I think a lot of people with trauma think that there is. I think a lot of people with trauma feel like their trauma has stopped their life somehow. And it's like, hasn't. It's nothing stopping us from being happy. You know, um, I wish that I knew this younger because I spent a lot of my young adult life blaming other people for my misery or acting like oh the world owes me a living why am i so unlucky well i never worked i never did the work i wanted everything to come easy to me because i was like it's it, i it, i earned it i'm a victim and then when i stopped being a victim and i stopped wanting other people to look at me like one because i did go through a period where i was looking for someone to save me mm -hmm. i did have relationships with men where i needed them to save me and I would date the wrong men for it. I would date gangsters. I would date these hardcore men that were. I don't think I've ever dated a man that didn't go to prison for like some double digit. Like all of the men that I've dated after my daughter's dad were all out of prison, you know? And it's like that mentality makes you have it too because you're so surrounded by it and it stops you. You know, a lot of times I stop myself from living. And I made the wrong choices by surrounding myself with the wrong people. So, you know, my circle is very small right now, but I feel like it's very healthy. Mm -hmm. I don't have a relationship with the man yet, but I'm sure that when I meet one, that it will be healthy too, you know, mm -hmm. because I feel better and I feel like, I feel like he'll probably be the most lucky person to ever date me simply because I've made so many changes to mm -hmm. who I am right now. You know, um, although I don't think you should look for anything. I think you should just let life happen. You know what I'm I heard, saying? I heard somebody saying one time, become the partner that you're looking for. That's another thing, because I, I was like, why don't any of my relationship work? Well, I was always looking below me. I was always dating these hardcore men that these super tough guys, but none of them had a career. None of them had like, like, uh, ops, like, um. What is it? Not options. Uh, ambition. Mm -hmm. None of them had ambition. Like, you know, you you're a cook, but are you ever going to be a chef? And when I would hear people just be like, no, I'm good with being a cook. It's like, but I'm not good with where I'm at. I want to keep growing and I need someone to mm -hmm. do that, too. So I always I just know that like my previous relationships were always with men that never were going to be at the same level I was with my career. You know, but then these men wanted me to come home and take care of them, you know, and it's right. like, you know, because they had nothing else to do. Yes. They still needed someone to come home and do their laundry or like feed them. And so I don't know. Yeah. Being willing to be alone is a huge act of self-care. Yeah. I get scared sometimes that I might get too comfortable being the lone wolf because mm -hmm. I have been for such a long time now. And so, you know, that's a little bit of a fear that I do have right now is like, don't get too comfortable with that. Right. Because um, it has been my protection, but I think it's been a protection too long. And 
I think things, my feeling is things are going to change for you because you're in a state of, of growth <laughs> right so. now. And yeah. I think the more positive we feel about ourselves, the less terrifying it is to have somebody see us, you know, I'm, a la being in a relationship where they get True. to see all our flaws and, you know. Well, we have to be ugly. We're not pretty all the time. Yeah. You know, um, I look forward to people's imperfections, though. What I'm afraid of is showing them mine. That's that's the interesting thing is that I'm in such acceptance of other people, but I'm so afraid of them being in acceptance of me. And so that's, you know, mm-hmm. but I think that I, I hear that with a lot of trauma. Well, pull, put, all these, put all these shitty things about yourself in your dating profile and just get it over with. Ah. <laughs> I like to sleep. <laughs> I do. It feels so good. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the podcast and sharing about all this stuff. I feel like we covered uh, a lot of ground that we don't typically cover uh, oh, cool. on the podcast. And I always get super excited and you're just uh, you're a very easy person to talk to and I'm fired up for your future. Thank you very much. Well, we'll stay in touch. Many thanks to, to Raquel. And uh, yeah, it was nice covering, covering all that ground. As I've mentioned the last couple of weeks on the the uh, the podcast, uh, for ethical reasons, I made the decision to walk away from a uh, the primary source of income for this podcast, and I'm trying to find other ways to supplement it. And one of those ways is my asking for help, uh, asking you guys to become monthly Patreon donors. You can do it for as little as a dollar a month, um, and for people that are at the twenty dollar. Uh, a month or above uh, level, you get access to our weekly support group slash Zoom hangout. And um, it is, I do not like having to ask for help, um, but but there it is. Um, we are currently just over uh, 700 uh, monthly donors a month. And for the podcast to break even, we need to get to about 1500 so we got a long ways to go and anybody who can chip in it would be greatly greatly uh, appreciated and you can also make one-time donations through uh, paypal you can even do a monthly donation through paypal but it, you don't get access to benefits like bonus content behind the scenes pictures especially of gracie stuff like that this is from the Awfulsome Moment survey, and this is filled out by a trans man who calls himself Soggy Band-Aid. That's my favorite kind of Band-Aid. When I was 17, my dad had promised to help me with an art project, encasing slices of toast in resin. I spent the morning toasting all slices of an extra long loaf of bread and went over to his house. He'd forgotten my visit and sat in a chair in the garden, slightly woozy, He told me he had swallowed a lot of pills in order to kill himself and to let him die. This was far from the first time he had tried to commit suicide, but the first time I experienced it firsthand. I called an ambulance and they took us to the emergency psych ward. While they treated him, he was doing okay, just a bit delirious. I sat down in a sort of waiting area. I realized I was still carrying the giant loaf of bread in my arms and that I must look ridiculous. I hadn't eaten in over a day, and since it seemed like my art plans were canceled, I grabbed a slice and sat down. There I was, on the floor, eating stale toast. 
when suddenly my dad came running butt naked, screaming about wanting his cigarettes while being chased by two nurses. I couldn't help but laugh about the absurdity of the situation. The next day I was back at work. My colleague asked if I'd had a good weekend. With a fake smile, the only appropriate answer was, yeah, it was good. How about you? Oh, my God. Thank you for that. Holy shit. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself She Womps. Uh, she's gay. She's in her 30s, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, never been sexually abused, but she's been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, I was in a relationship with another woman, one who had borderline personality disorder over the course of two to three years. I was subjected to her extremes and emotional abuse, being told I was too sensitive, being goaded into physical confrontations with her ex in some strange triangulation of past and present partners. Towards the end, she slapped me across the face for reaching for something of mine that she was holding. Stunned, I uttered the first thing that came to mind. I should call the police. She then told me to go ahead. She would be happy to tell them it was in self-defense. She proceeded to bite down on her bottom lip, puncturing it, and showed me her lip as evidence. That was the moment where my empathy for her seemed to end, and I felt a break from reality. In panic, I left the house and ended up sleeping outside for the night. Looking back, I carried a lot of shame about the abuse for the first year or two following my exit from the relationship. I felt like I'd been a willing participant in my own abuse. Not only that, but I've been transitioning, in the parentheses, I'm transgender, when we first met, but it, I stopped after she expressed various things about who she thought I really was, and I'd empathized with her so much that I found my own core beliefs shifting to accommodate her black and white thinking. I completely changed who I was for someone who did not really appreciate me as I was, and that took a while to forgive myself for. I spent two years feeling like a waifish ghost in my own body, slowly sinking into a deep depression that caused weight loss, body image, body image issues, and insurmountable shame for washing away who I had been before meeting her. Any positive experiences with abusers? This ex had a young son, and my fondness for him complicated my feelings for my ex to the point where he became the only reason, or so I told myself, I'd stayed in the relationship. Darkest thoughts. I still think about how good the sex was with my ex. Uh, the physical chemistry was there, but everything else was a mismatch. I feel some shame about remembering it so well and for feeling like a toxic relationship was the best sex I might ever have. Darkest secrets. I had anonymous sex with a man during a manic episode. This was the first time I'd been with a man, too. I met him on an app and invited him over in the middle of the night to have sex with me. When he arrived, he simply came in and got situated. We didn't exchange words or names. At first, as he first penetrated me, I told him it hurt and to go slowly, but he insisted I relax and proceeded to have sex with me. 
After he left, I noticed there was a lot of blood from the sex and that he had ejaculated inside of me despite the condom I gave him to use. I looked at the condom afterwards and noticed that it had been broken, likely from his forced entry. I felt empowered in a strange sort of numbing way for days and weeks after. In the first days that followed the encounter, I would catch a whiff of his cologne in one of my rooms, which only enhanced the feeling of dissociation I was experiencing at the very uncharacteristic act of having casual sex with a stranger. I had never done that before, and I promised myself after that I would never, I, I would and could never do that again. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I've recently started to fantasize about sex with a new friend I made recently. I have a sense that we'd have great sexual chemistry and it's been hard not to think about despite us only getting to know each other. It actually feels good to share because it's not something I can act on or share with her out of fear that she might not speak to me anymore. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Towards my father, my life is no better or worse without you. I went no contact with my father a year a year ago after he gave me an ultimatum while I was staying with him to suck up his treatment of me and my identity or get out. I chose to leave and stop speaking to him a few weeks later. Good for you. That's awesome. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to receive the kind of love I need and deserve from a partner. Have you shared these things with others? I told a close friend and my therapist about my anonymous sexual encounter. I told them because they were safe spaces to share, but I didn't necessarily feel better afterwards. I haven't shared the rest with anyone else, mostly due to guilt and lingering shame. How do you feel after writing these things down? Some of these things I've tried not to think about over the years, but occasionally they pop up in my thoughts. I feel a little lighter for sharing them with someone else, and actually... I feel less alone in my shame. I'm glad. I'm glad. That's good to hear. It's one of my favorite things when I read surveys. And by the end of the surveys, people are, are feeling lighter. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I've done a lot of conscious work on my mental health this year. And it's possible to forgive yourself for doing things that bring up shame or guilt. It just takes time and practice. Amen. A fucking men. Good for you for choosing yourself. Yeah, being patient in our recovery is, for me, has been one of the most important ways to begin to feel self-love, self, I don't know, to feel autonomy, the safeness of autonomy. And it also kind of raises this standard when it becomes your normal to not allow toxic people to walk over you um, and to recognize other people's boundaries and not walk over them. Um, the standard gets raised. Uh, the template for what a healthy relationship looks like gets formed. And we tend to choose healthier partners and, and friends um, and if they're not, recognize it and distance ourselves from them. That, that at least has been my experience and the experience of a lot of people I know. This is from the love survey filled out by Mia. Mia Kep. She writes, I love the smell of jasmine flowers blooming. I love when my husband and I have the same days off 
and can enjoy the day together. I love seeing and saying hi to all the neighborhood cats on my walk. I love the feeling when I finish cleaning my apartment and I can relax. Oh, that is a great feeling. I love the feeling of finishing a book. And I love making lists and checking them off. Thank you for those. Oh, man. Finishing a day's to-do list. Amazing. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Chlorine. He identifies as pansexual. He is 18. He says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, He says no, and then writes, actually, when I was a child, I sexually abused two other children a couple of times. I had no idea what I was doing, but the experimentation I put those two Uh, those two others through makes me feel sick and disgusting in ways that never have failed to plague me. People often say that it is a good idea to keep children away from the internet. My past is the direct evidence of that being true. Ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. I've had so many terrible relationships, it blurs together not only from the similarities, but the repression as well. Darkest Thoughts I am 18 and severely depressed, um, medically diagnosed, among other mental illnesses that affect me to the point where I cannot finish schooling or get a job. I think about rotting away until my mother dies, the only one that can take care of me, then finally succumbing to the mental illnesses, suicide or otherwise. Darkest secrets. Child-on-child sexual abuse uh, is one of the worst secrets I hold from my past. I've been self-harming since I was 12 or 13, and nobody else knows. Also, I never got to say goodbye to my father who died, alone in a hospital from a liver-related disease. Also, I've had so many online relationships, I can't remember all of them. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Mutual worship, taking turns going crazy for each other. Sharing that makes me feel like it's probably too niche but here's to hoping. I don't think that's that's too niche at all. I think that's totally, totally doable. My concern for you is all the pain that it seems like you are holding inside, the pain and the shame and the guilt. And I really hope that you can find um, a place to open up that, that feels safe to you because um, you deserve it. Anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could say goodbye and thank you to my dad. He was such a good man, such a good father to me. It breaks my heart uh, that he passed away without me getting the chance to properly say it. I have the feeling your dad probably knew that. And I would ask, suggest that you ask yourself, would my dad want me to be hating myself for not having had that chance? And I would imagine the answer would be, No, he wouldn't want you dwelling on that. You know, I think when we're in pain, one of the coping mechanisms that we go to is obsessing about ourselves, whether it's grandiosity or self-loathing. But that's why I think getting out of ourselves by sharing with someone else, which is different than self-obsessing, because we can get feedback or... And just the act of having to form a sentence to express what we're thinking or feeling is different than those thoughts 
ping-ponging around in our brain by ourselves a million miles an hour. What, if anything, do you wish for? Meds that work well, to be honest. Have you shared these things with others? Not really. I've shared some of my regrets involving my dad with my therapist, but my darkest parts are very hard for me to think about, let alone talk about, without completely breaking down. Well, that's good that you're in therapy. How do you feel after writing these things down? Conflicted, in between crying and being hopeful, which I've lost the ability to do uh, for quite some time. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It's okay to cry. It's okay to rest. It's okay to not know how tomorrow will end. Just fight for your place to be there as best as you can. So true. So true. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I really, really hope that you can continue on the path of of human connection and and opening up and continuing to, to seek help. You know, you're... You're 18 years old, and that may seem old to you, but you you can have a whole lifetime ahead of you of healing and developing new tools and reframing your history in a way that doesn't keep you stuck alone and self-shaming and sending you some love. This is an email I got from Mrs. Aisha El Gaddafi, and she writes, Greetings, my beloved one. I need your assistance. Uh, Please bear with me. I am writing this letter to you with tears and sorrow from my heart. I am Aisha Mamar Gaddafi, the only daughter of the embattled president of Libya. Um, It is so sad when somebody has died and they are still embattled uh, because they there's nothing that they can do. And they're just there. They're they're there in their coffin and they're trying to get out. They're trying to fight back. Uh, I know my email come might come to you as a surprise. It did. I actually fell out of my chair. It was more of a stool, um, so it wasn't as bad as you know falling off of like a high top bar chair. Um, but I did injure my elbow, and I'm icing it down right now. Do uh, but due to the unsolicited nature of my situation here in refugee camp. And the, the camp is spelled O-U-A-G-A-D-O-U-G-O-U. And I, I'm just going to take a shot at this. I believe it's pronounced Miller. Uh, I have passed through pains and sorrowful moments since the death of my father. I can't imagine. At the same time, my family is the target of Western nations led by NATO who want to destroy my father at all costs. Our investments and bank accounts in several countries are their targets to freeze. Um, My father of blessed memory deposited $27,500,000 in a bank at at Burkina Faso. Um, I am looking for a an investor slash partner who can stand as my trustee and receive the fund in his account for a possible investment in his country due to my refugee status. I'm in search of an honest and reliable person, that's me, who will help me and stand as my trustee so that I will present him to the bank for the transfer of the fund to his bank bank account overseas. Uh, 
I've chosen you to contact after my prayers, and I believe that you will not betray my trust, but rather take me as your own sister or daughter. I did that. It, I got one sentence into your email, and I said, this is my sister daughter, because I don't want you to be just a sister or just a daughter. And I have a, a, a long history of um, taking people in as a relative. Um, there's a very close woman in my life who I took as a grandma. Um, and she's been in my life about two weeks now. And she has taken all my money. Um, but she always has sweets in her purse. And so I hold her close. If this transaction interests you, you don't have to disclose it to anybody because of what's going on with my entire family. If the United Nation happens to know this account, they will freeze it as they freeze others. So please keep this transaction only to yourself until we finalize it. I am so sorry, but when I got your email, I was talking to the woman I've taken as my grandmother. And I did not realize that we were in front of a mic at the United Nations. We have a juggling act, and we were entertaining people, and I thought the show was done. But apparently it was not. And I don't know what is going to happen to you or your dead father, but I wish both of you well. And I will always hold you next to my heart as a sister-daughter. And I hope that you hold me close to your heart as a brother-father. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Love Me Not. She identifies as straight. She's in her 60s. She says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, She was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. She writes, Hi, Paul. I have shared my story with some therapists, but have always been too ashamed to share it with others. Our mom was the perpetrator in our story, in parentheses, me and my two siblings. When my older sister was a baby, my mom sexually abused her daily, essentially making her a personal sex slave until she was 13 when she ran away from home. All the years of abuse took a toll on my sister until she mysteriously passed away at age 14. She was in another city then, and I've never known exactly how she died. They said it was heat stroke, and she fell into a coma and never woke up. For over 50 years, this has haunted me and brought me so much grief that I am still unable to cope some days. She also sexually abused my little brother, using him as what what he describes as her stand-in husband. She tried to abuse me, which... Uh, which seemed I was her last resort. But at age nine, when it happened, I found the courage to tell her to stop and never touch me again. Instead, she neglected my health, and I ended up in the hospital with rheumatic fever from untreated strep strep throat. When she lost custody of us, I was 11, emaciated and starving. My mom abused drugs, alcohol, and whatever else she could get high on, such as sniffing gas. She was mentally depraved. The other thing that haunts me is how no one in our family, including my dad, did anything to stop any of this fucked up behavior. My dad was around but worked away a lot. 
There were times my mom would announce she was leaving and never coming back, and I remember we'd be standing at the door crying, watching her drive away. I don't know how long we were left alone, but my sister would walk us down to the store and the owner would give us food. How? Why? Didn't anyone help us? I only saw her a few times after she lost custody of us in 1981. I ended my relationship with her, I was 21, and never saw her again until she died in 1993. I never got the chance to address any of this with her. There are days when I am extremely pissed off at the world, and there's a vacancy in my heart that feels will never heal. How do you recover from such loss and shame? Any positive experiences? None, and none is in caps. Darkest thoughts. I would like to go back in time and literally beat the shit out of my mom and tell her what an awful human being she was. And then that's, that is the, the end of uh, the survey. She didn't fill out anymore. Now to your, to your question, you know, how do you recover from such loss and shame? I, I know that it's, the path is not keeping it in, and it's good that you've talked with the therapist about, about some of this. And um, for me, what has been healthy in dealing with my, my stuff, which is not as severe as yours, um, has been finding people, finding people who are safe. And I, I think it's a lifelong process, but it does get better. It can get better. This is an awful moment filled out by a gender fluid uh, person who calls themselves, it's not you, it's me. Well, I'm glad that you finally admit it. Uh, they write, I spent my 15th birthday in the psych ward. I had this pair of fuzzy socks that they let me keep from my intake. Well, this pair of socks had a hole in it. Every day I was in there, I would put a toe out of the hole, making it slightly bigger than the day before. By the end of my stay, I'd essentially created ankle warmers out of my socks. Anyhow, I woke up on my birthday. Phone time came and went. Because I was a kid, I couldn't make outgoing calls. I could only receive them. My parents had forgotten to call, forgotten my birthday. I didn't tell anyone in the ward about it being my special day, just kind of shut up and told myself I would celebrate my half birthday instead. Well, dinner time rolled around and my favorite nurse came up to me and handed me a new wristband, one that had my correct birthday. She took me back into the family therapy room where there was a chocolate cupcake with a yellow candle that was not lit. It was the psych ward after all. I don't even like chocolate cake, but it was phenomenal probably because I was so sugar-deprived. I still have the candle and the wristband four years later. Thank you for that. What an image. What an image that is. And then finally, these are some loves filled out by um, a person who calls himself Coffee and Sunrise Makes My Day. And they write, I love the sound of driftwood hitting a rock. When I throw a stick to my dog and it hits a rock, the sound is so soothing. I don't know why, but it's kind of warm and dry and it feels safe. Perhaps it's some instinct back from when we lived in caves and were relying on wood for heat and light. Uh, I love the sound of Gracie moving in the background on this podcast. Uh, 
I commute to my job by train for 30 minutes every morning, and I love the way people sort of ease into the same calm once the train has started moving. It starts chaotic. People are late or just on time, running big purses with filled coffee mugs or maneuvering through the midway. The people that were not late are bothered by having to move their big bags and purses from their neighbor's seat as the train fills up. Dogs try to adapt by finding their spot by their owner, and kids are telling their parents that they are either too warm or they want to sit on their lap. My thoughts can, as this time, go towards something like, why do I not live a life where I can drive to work or do like they do in Europe and bike? But then it shifts. The train starts moving in a couple of minutes. Every in a couple of minutes in, everyone seems to fall into the same calm. People read on their phones or newspapers. The rest look out the window or straight ahead, sipping their coffee, gazing. I always like this part of the day, and I wonder what people are thinking about. Even the kids and the dogs seem to zoom out and relax. It makes me feel connected to other live human beings that are sharing the same faith as me a cramped up train ride early in the morning i like that i like that thank you for that you're a very observant person it's nice when we can get out of ourselves long enough to kind of just see the flow of life around us and i don't know about you but my problems seem to not go away but feel a little bit smaller and um I don't know. I love, I, I love when you guys fill out surveys and they you just paint like a little movie, a little vignette. So thank you for that. And to anybody who's out there and uh, feeling stuck, just remember that, that help is out there. Our tribe is out there. It's just a matter of finding them. And, um, and never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.